If I were to ask you, what was the absolute worst moment of your life? Would you be able to pinpoint it? The question's a lot harder than I thought it would be, especially when asking myself these questions. But that's exactly what I asked this week. What is the absolute worst moment of your life? Here on Behind Every Story. What's up, everyone? My name's Jason, and this is Behind Every Story. If this is your first time with us, let me explain what's happening. I love stories from comics to movies to songs to jokes, sitting around a campfire with a couple friends or sitting in an audience with a group of strangers being enveloped by a storyteller. I love hearing people's stories. And even more than that, I love hearing the stories behind those stories. This show is the proverbial director's commentary on the movie of life. This is episode 16 of the COVID-50. This week we're discussing what was the absolute worst moment of your life. Before we begin, a note of warning. The topics we explore on this show may not be suitable for all listeners. This podcast deals with real people and real stories. These stories may contain and deal with graphic language, adult themes, sexual content, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Like I mentioned in the opener, if I were to ask you, what was the worst moment of your life? Where does your mind go? I think the thing that interests me most about this question isn't learning about the worst moment, but more about how someone's grown after it. I believe that through our lives, we are faced with challenges and hurdles and mountains to overcome. But when we do, are we stronger? Are we better because of it? Or maybe just our outlook has changed. And I think sometimes that change can be for the better. So when I hear phrases like the best day of your life or the worst moment of your life, where does your mind go? Where does my mind go? And that's what I think is really interesting, is what qualifies as the worst moment of your life. Now, I've been blessed. I've had a fantastic life. I have amazing friends with amazing memories, and I've had an amazing journey. Yes, I've had my share of hurdles, but I like to think on the positive side of most things. And that's what happens when I think back to those moments in life that really emotionally crushed me, like going through a breakup that just destroyed my self-esteem and my mental image and destroyed my body as I lost like 40 pounds in a couple weeks. But I look back on that and I think, I'm glad I went through that. I'm a stronger person for overcoming that. Or something as trivial as my film not winning best editing at the Savannah Film Festival when it won every other category and my position on the film was editor. Now, it was a disabling moment in my life and it hurt, but because of that, I went out for a drink and I met Ellen Burstyn. That was really cool and I got to talk to her at a bar for a little while. Um, 
or not passing my second round of grad thesis. And when you're in your grad thesis uh, rounds of explaining why you should be able to go on, you only get three rounds. And the third round, you're kicked out. So it was becoming very obvious that I might not have what it takes. So I took that second loss to heart and it broke me. But that day I confessed my love to my then girlfriend and now wife. Or I worked at a job that seriously broke me emotionally and physically and psychologically. But because of that, I got to start my business. So when I think back of the worst moment of my life, I veer more towards the idea that it's not about me, but it was about my impact on someone else. One summer in college, I was trying to raise enough money so I could keep going to school. And I was working three jobs. I had a job at a record store where I would start about six or seven at night and work until one or two in the morning. And I had a grounds crew job where I think it was three days a week where I would work at a park district cleaning up parks and things like that. And then I had a construction job during the day. Needless to say, I was running myself ragged. And really, I had no social life. I was doing nothing besides working these three jobs. And it took its toll on me. One day after the construction job, I was driving home and I fell asleep in my car. And I fell asleep quickly, but I was jolted awake when I slammed into the back of a car at a stoplight. And when I realized what had happened, I jumped out of the car. I ran over to see if the people inside were okay. And the old woman in the front seat was in her 60s. And the two children in the back seat were very young. And nothing quite has ever shaken me as much as knowing that my life was going to end at that moment. Maybe not life and death, but everything I had ever worked for or was planning to, I knew was finished. And of course, I immediately accepted fault, which is the one thing they always tell you you're not supposed to do in a car accident. But I, how could I? I? I knew I was at fault. I knew that this was this was my fault and i tried to get them help um i quickly called an ambulance i called 911 i broke down i uh i i was told by the police who showed up almost immediately to step away from the car to not engage with them to not talk to them and i watched them as the ambulance came and drove the woman away in a neck brace and I uh, I tried to go to the hospital. I went to the hospital. I tried to find her room number. I tried to send her a note to make sure I hope she's okay. And I was, I was scared out of my mind. And yes, I was scared for myself, but I was terrified that I had ruined someone else's life. And that hit, that hit me so hard. So 
Um, I was told to leave the hospital. I wasn't allowed to make any kind of contact with her or anyone around her. And I went home and um, my parents knew what, what had happened. I was living with my dad at this time. And um, I, remember, I remember the car. Like It didn't dawn on me until after this that, that the car I hit was just destroyed. And I was, I was thanking whatever I could, <laughs> the universe, God, whatever, that they weren't killed. And time went by. We talked to my lawyer. I was panicking. I, I kept working, but I, uh, I quit one of the jobs and I was only down to two because I didn't want to chance that again. And, um, time went by and I had a court date. Um, I remember sitting in the court, talking to my lawyer. Uh, he was preparing me to get ready to, uh, pretty much fail pretty much to accept everything that was coming my way. He was just saying like, we're, we're going to fight this, blah, blah, blah. But, but just be prepared because, you know, shit can go bad very quick, quickly. And I remember sitting in the courtroom waiting for my, my time to come up to stand up in front of the judge and talk about everything. And I was the only one there in a tie. And that kind of threw me off. But it, it, it's funny in these moments, you remember the smallest, stupidest shit, but it was my time. They called my name. Um, of course, I'm sweating bullets. I'm, my head is spaced out. I feel like I'm not even there. Like I'm, like I'm watching this happen on a TV set. And I stand up. Um, the the woman I hit comes in. She looks at me, but doesn't really like look at me for too long. And my heart just sinks out of my soul. She goes up to the judge, uh, talks to him. Uh, walks out, and as she's walking out, she looks at me again and walks out. And that's all it was. And like I was expecting something, something far more when she came in. But then the judge says, "Well, we're dropping this case." Uh, the lawyers both shook hands and said, "You know, every everything's done." And I couldn't believe it. I walked out of there, and I talked to my lawyer, and the lawyer said, uh, "You you've been touched by an angel." Um, uh, <laughs> it's it's hard to talk about this. Um, but apparently she had heard that I went to the hospital. I tried to see if she was okay and how bad I felt. And she she learned all about who I was and what I was doing and why I was working these jobs and I was trying to go to school on this on on this money. And she dropped everything. Uh, our insurance took care of all the medical bills and everything else, but she dropped the entire lawsuit. And ever since then, I am giddy at stupid shit. I am happy to live my days um, as they come. And I'm always extremely cautious in traffic. And I no longer work those kind of hours, which is stupid to even say. But that was probably the absolute worst moment of my life, was realizing that my stupidity and my ignorance and my my fucking selfishness could have killed someone and ruined ruined multiple lives so we're going to take a quick break and when we come back i'm going to ask everyone what was the worst moment of your life
My name is Brandon. I am a software developer. I am from Elgin, Illinois. What was the absolute worst moment of your life? The absolute worst moment of my life. Uh, there's one in specific I think of. Um, there was an incident where the police broke down my door and, and pulled my wife and I out of the house at gunpoint. It was a complete mistake on their part. We did nothing wrong, but we were in the situation. I was brought down first. I was cuffed. I was put in the back of a squad car. Uh, annoyed, but not, not super angry. And then a little bit later, I see my wife in cuffs being walked in front of the car I'm in. And she's in tears and she's crying saying, I don't understand why you're doing this. And they wouldn't explain it to her. And I lost it. Sorry. I was in a position of helplessness, uh, cuffed in the back of a squad car. Previously, I've, I've seen shows like Cops, as we all have, where people are in the back of a squad car acting like a fool, kicking at the windows and screaming. And we laugh and ha, 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 look at that, you know, a criminal just as frustrated. That's, that's amusing. Until you're in a situation where you feel so helpless that all you want to do is kick and scream. It's, uh, it's uh, a very difficult thing, especially when it's happening to a loved one that you just want to comfort and you can't. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. Uh, uh, let's continue. My name is Rob and I am from the Midwest in America. I think the worst moment would be the day we knew that our, our store, we had a retail store, the day I knew that our store was done, that we were going to have to close. And it wasn't for me that it was my worst day. It was I knew how badly it hurt my wife. It was really painful. It really, truly felt like losing a child. That was, that had to be the worst day. And, and anything other than that, I mean, like we had to have a cat put to sleep and, and I still have enormous guilt over that. Uh, I've lost a couple of really good friends and it's really hard. Those are terrible days, but I think the day that our store closed, it felt like, like our first child died and you have all that guilt and pain around it. And I, I felt so bad for my wife. I could tell it was just eating her alive. It was so painful. Do you look back on that and think like, does it uh, inspire you to do something? Does it persuade you from doing things? I think it made us smarter in some ways. Uh, we still find ourselves making similar mistakes. Uh, for a long time, there was a level of PTSD associated with it where like we would go into a, uh, an area where we knew we had customers at one point, And even, you know, 20 years later, we're going, oh God, you know, what if we see them and we have to answer for our store closing? And it's like, yeah, but our store closed. It's not, we didn't screw them over or anything. It was that, it was that horrible feeling of like, you believed in us and we failed. And now there's, it's like, we're wearing the scarlet letter A. In this case, it'd be the scarlet letter F because we failed. 
Scarlet Letter B was bankruptcy. My name is Stella, and I'm from Chicago. Oh, the worst moment of my life was getting the call that Stephen had gotten hit by a drunk driver. Um, and by, my father-in-law had called and said, this is what happened. He's, uh, he's going to be okay. He broke his back and his leg. Um, I'm going to come pick you up now. Can, can I come pick you up? I said, absolutely. And I didn't like, it didn't, didn't click. Um, interestingly enough, a few years later, I got that same call from my mom about my dad getting hit by a car as a pedestrian. So apparently the two men that I love in my life were both hit by moving vehicles. Once is done. We're, we don't need to do that again. <laughs> that's, that's enough. Right. So those are probably, I, I just gave you two, but two, two phone calls that were the worst calls of my life. I am Chris. I'm a director of photography and I am from Chicago. I've lost connection. I would say one of the worst moments in my life is at a realization that because of a mistake of mine, I caused some of my family members to lose connection with one another. And I knew that that would affect how my immediate family interacted together. And I knew that it would also affect um, like big family events, which I absolutely love, like Christmases and Thanksgivings and such as that. Uh, the event itself, I'll keep to myself, but I, I would say like that feeling of knowing like because you made a mistake, other people will have to suffer for it. I would say it's my worst moment in my whole life. And how did that change you afterwards? I think the way that it changed my personality afterwards is that it made me want to have more interactions with people on an intimate level, especially emotionally, knowing that I would have to make up for it somehow in the people that I had now lost in my life. So I think it made me a much more outgoing person than I was. My name is Brett and I'm a writer and a musician and I'm from Chicago, Illinois. What was the absolute worst moment of your life? <laughs> you said that super ominously. It's the worst moment of my life. The worst moment of my life hasn't happened. Um, I've answered this question in different ways at different times to different people, but uh, if you ask me this question on my deathbed, I think it'll probably be the day my dad dies. Um, and maybe if I have kids that it would change that if some tragedy happened to them. But I think um, that will be the worst day of my life as it stands. I don't know that any event that has happened has been the worst day. Like I could tell you the day my ex-fiance broke up with me. It crushed me. I was destroyed for six months the day my last girlfriend broke up with me uh and she walked out in a similar fashion triggered a lot of that same feeling in november and sent me spiraling for a couple months and i you know i lost 20 pounds i was a, a wreck and but those things 
once you pass those things, once you process those things, those worst days, you can usually recover from them. And I've been lucky and blessed enough in life to not have a lot of things that I couldn't recover from. And the, the one you really can is just losing people you love. Um, so I think that's, that's, that'd be it. My name is Potato Johnson, and I am from Crystal Lake, Illinois. Hmm. Worst moment of my life. Every day I walk into work is the worst moment of my life. Why? I'm not serious about that. Um, Fair enough. um, I... I, I don't know if I've had it yet, honestly. Um, I, I kind of always think the worst is yet to come. Um, so far, I I mean, sure, bad shit's happened, but you always kind of get, get through it. It's like, as of right now, you know, most of my family's still alive. Um, I have all my limbs. I have all my kids. I have a job. Um, well, with this vi- this virus, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, so it, it's kind of like I I don't think I've hit it yet. I, I think uh, it's still to come. I mean, and that seems like a, a negative thing to say, but I mean, in a way, it's kind of positive that you know things are going pretty well, I guess. My name is John. I am from the west suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> uh, let's see. There's so many, um, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with uh, when I found out my wife was cheating on me, uh, which I will go ahead and tell you the story of real quick because mm. it's pretty epic. Is that I was married, thought I was in a happy marriage. Uh, it, I was happy. She seemed really happy. I had no reason to suspect anything was weird was going on at all. And uh, I ne- I was never a paranoid dude. I never questioned her loyalty. And then one night when we were going to bed, she looked at her cell phone and she set her alarm on it. And then she handed me her cell phone and uh, asked me to plug it in for her because the cord was on my side of the bed. Okay. So... These are iPhones, facial recognition. Her phone was unlocked because she had just looked at it. She handed it to me. And that at that exact moment, bing, bing, two texts came in from the dude who she was fucking. And yeah, and the texts were, uh, I just saw like, you know, the preview or whatever, and they were sexually explicit. And I knew in an instant that my life had just collapsed. So... That's kind of that's kind of rough, man. How did this change you afterward? I'm still going through it. That only happened last year, so um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people have uh, told me that perhaps I'm going to have trust issues, stuff like that, and um, it's only been about seven or eight months, and I, I don't know. I don't feel I have trust issues, but I've, I've, uh, 
learned a lot about myself because of what happened. And that was that like, um, you know, we don't have to go into every detail, but like I was the good guy. Like I tried to save my marriage even after that. Like if there was ever a question about what kind of man I am, I didn't raise a hand to her. I didn't, I didn't throw her out of the house. I didn't even call her a bitch, you know, not yelled a lot. Sure. But (laughs) I didn't threaten her, you know, and, and I tried to save everything and she chose that decided that it wasn't worth saving. And, and what I learned about myself was that once some of the, a few months later, I mean, when some of the emotions and stuff had been able to wear away and, I was seeing a professional and stuff. I was able to realize that like, um, I didn't deserve what happened to me. I didn't, I didn't deserve to be treated like that. Um, and that means that I was also, it was okay for me to like let go of her and to stop blaming myself for every single thing that led up to everything, you know? So that's something I've learned is to stop blaming myself for everything. You want a Kleenex, motherfucker? (laughs) We are Lauren and Ryan, and we are from Chicago, Illinois. The absolute worst moment of my life was certainly um, when I found out that it was time to get a divorce in 2015. Um, Although it was the right decision for my life, it doesn't make it any less easier when you're living, you know, as a family unit with two children, uh, you know, and you're, you're a dad, that's your lifestyle. I'm dad, you know, that's what I know. I go to work and I come home and I'm dad. And now all of a sudden you're faced with being single. All right. I got to go out and date. I hate dating. You know, I hate pickup lines. I don't know. I don't want to do that. And I don't like particularly like bars. So how am I going to go out and meet people? So, you know, you're faced with a lot and and you're losing a lot and you're changing a lot. It's it's a tough situation. But um, the the way that it, you know, at first, uh, you know, in all honesty, it changed me very negatively. I I hurt for a while and I had to find I found some unhealthy coping mechanisms and things. But once you get through that part and, and you start picking your, lifting your head up again and saying, you know, things are going to be okay. I've got, got great family, got amazing friends. I've got amazing children and they still love you. You know, they still want to spend time with you. Then you start, you know, saying, okay, now I can, I'm free. I can go do something different. You know, I was locked in an IT career and I probably would have been locked in there if I'd stayed locked in that marriage uh, that I didn't like, you know, I didn't like the the career at all. It was, I was working for the government and it was a very tense political, uh, just ugly environment. I just didn't like it. And so it it allowed me to spread my wings again and just kind of reinvent my life. And, um, you know, it allowed me to come up to Chicago and, you know, start down a a new career path and ultimately meet Lauren. And we've already talked about all that, you know, that's, that was an amazing thing. And now we're running a, a, a really, a great and successful photography, videography, and photo booth business for weddings together. Uh, the worst moment for me, I really had to think about because I remember finding out about my son having autism, and that was devastating. Uh, and the reason that Ryan and I get along so well is because him and I come from a very similar uh, like past and situation. Um, and cheating is definitely like one of them where 
when I found out my ex-partner was, you know, with other women and sleeping with them, that broke me. It ruined my self-esteem. It ruined who I thought I was and who I thought our relationship was. A very similar situation with Ryan is, you know, your life is over. You have to start splitting everything. You're separating you know, you and you've had, been robbed of trust. Yeah, trust yeah. is definitely, and that's definitely for both of us. Is you know, trust is so unbelievably broken um, for everyone. You just kind of start not trusting anybody. Uh, I was severely depressed. I kind of I went off the deep end and spending way too much money traveling the world. Um, but I was able to recover from that very quickly. I mean, I want to say very, very quickly. But um, in, a effects, in a healthy amount of time, I mean, in, my, in our relationship now, like we really trust each other, you know, trust when it comes, you know, to we know we would never hurt each other that way. Um, we would never cheat on each other. Um, it took a long time, actually, for us to recover for that and kind of putting in. I don't know. It just kind of took a lot of time for us. And mm. we're in a really good place now. So it has it still does affect me in a lot of ways. But we've recovered. My name is Zach. I live in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, Christmas a few years ago, um, when I thought about taking my life, I thought that was the, the right move because I hated my career. I hated uh, where my life was headed. Everything seemed to be falling apart. The military was in crumbles for me at the time. And I felt like my career was just in the dumps. Um, I never saw my friends because I was either in a classroom or at work. Um, and I would say I was at my lowest point. And then I spent Christmas alone. Um, and I spent about nine hours locked in my bathroom in my parents' basement because I had, you know, I, th I thought that was it for me. Um, and luckily I had people in my circle that I could reach out to and they answered the phone and, um, you know, I, I spent the day talking to a bunch of different people over that nine hours and, um, that along with a, a little bit of cannabis definitely, um, brought my spirits back up. And, uh, I think mainly the people really made me realize, Hey, don't be an idiot. Um, don't be a statistic. And um, I think they kind of pulled, pulled me up out of the dumps and, uh, you know, helped me get to where I need to be um, to make sure that, you know, nothing happened. How did this change you after the fact? Um, I definitely put a bigger emphasis um, on mental health and, and trying to improve or get better, if you will. Um, I, I kind of tried to learn a little bit about what I could do to help deal with some of the issues I was facing. Um, recently in the last few months, you know, people deal with depression and, you know, without actually realizing it or, or knowing it, I was in a depressive state, had, had no idea. It took a major life event, um, for me to kind of get out of that, that slump, have somebody kind of push me, um, kind of give me a wake up call. I didn't know I needed. And, uh, and so that kind of helped this now in this last couple of months, um, kind of jumpstart, you know, my life and kind of pick back up where, where I need to be and kind of hmm. do some of the things that I've been putting off and some of the things I just didn't really feel like doing. Um, 
you know, I, I didn't want to talk about anything in real life. I just yeah. really just didn't want to do anything. Um, you know, come home and just kind of stare at the screen all day. So I, I did it at, at my work and now I want to come home and just play on my phone or play the video games or, or whatever. I didn't want to deal with life. And I didn't kind of realize that that was a mental health issue. I just thought I was kind of in a slump. So somebody that I really care for, um, she kind of gave me an ultimatum and we are not in a good place, her and I, unfortunately, you know, I'd like it to be different, but it is what it is. But she kind of gave me a wake up call. I didn't know I needed. And, um, it's definitely helped. And in the last probably four weeks, I've definitely, definitely improved as a person. And I've kind of made changes that I needed to change and, and made decisions that were what I thought were difficult, which were actually very easy. And so because of that, I feel like I'm, I'm in definitely in a better place. Um, my name is Marie and I am from St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, I am I'm gonna go back to my uncle. Um, the worst moment in my life was when my uncle committed suicide and I was I think eight years old um yeah that was uh that was a hard time for me it was a hard time for everyone in our family um especially my grandmother because she was you know, we, we definitely had more of a matriarchal family than a patriarchal family. Mm-hmm. Um, and even so many years ago, I just, I remember the moment that the police knocked on the door to kind of pass that information to my grandmother. And to this day, my grandmother and my mother have never came to the terms of him dying I they're still in the grieving process um I think they're both pretty stoic women um they're they're both the kind of women who don't really want to admit that they have anxiety or they have any issues and I think growing up I definitely was like that because I was surrounded by that especially after he died and it wasn't until after I got back from Savannah, which I think I was like 21, 22, mm-hmm. I, I kind of went to a therapist and I started kind of going to meditation sessions and I started really thinking about my anxiety and where my anxiety was stemming from. And a lot of it was the fact that it stemmed from me losing this amazing person who was like a father to me. Yeah. Um, I think I'm the person that I am today because I, I lost that person that I loved. I had to deal with my grandmother and my mother's grief for several years and kind of, I got to see how they changed 
because they change from being these like wonderful people to being completely cold. And I mean, they're still kind of that way today. Um, and me learning, I, I don't want to be like that. Hmm. I, I'm still a, someone who kind of closes themselves up in a shell because I am an awkward person. But again, I'm trying to like break out of that, lean into the person that I am today. And a big reason I am the person I am today. And as weird as this sounds, it's because he passed away. I, I think I'd be a much more religious person today if he didn't die. Because during the funeral, they would not give him um, a proper funeral, being in a Roman Catholic family. Um, so he, he didn't get a, a proper funeral. And at that time, I think this kind of like changed me in such a good way, even though it's such a tragedy. Um, because I remember the priest saying that he committed suicide and he doesn't get a funeral because he's going to hell. And as someone who was going to religious classes at that time, I was like, but isn't God supposed to be good and forgiving? I don't understand these rules. <laughs> um, it, it made me start questioning things. And I, I think if it wasn't for him passing, I don't think I would have started questioning things. I think I'm a better person. And as weird as it sounds, I think out of that tragedy, I kind of received a gift. So before, when I was younger, I always wondered what would happen if he was still alive today. Now, I'm kind of grateful because I've kind of learned that I became a better person through dealing with his death. My name is Sarah and I'm from a podunk town in Iowa. Uh, I would say it was a moment. Um, I've had really super dark periods of my life over the past, oh, half my life. So struggling from depression and anxiety, I've had some really, really, really dark, dark times, dark, dark time periods. And I would say darkest moments probably came in my, my mid twenties. Um, I just, I, I would just lose complete control of, of my mind. And I would, I would say it would even go into my early twenties and like, I would, I could not handle, um, any perceived feeling of not being loved or not being understood. And so my, my reaction to that would be to flee, to leave, to run. Um, and that would like end up being like leaving the house at midnight or one in the morning and driving down to like the river and just sitting there and not contemplating anything like permanent, not, not getting to that level, like thinking about that kind of thing, but 
just getting so, so consumed with my own, with my own grief, um, over my own mental situation and the fact that I just could not handle and process things to the point where I just, I, I felt like running was a release and it ended up not really being one because in the end it didn't really create any change. But I would say that that was, that was a, probably the worst period in my life. I don't think I've had a moment necessarily. I've had moments that I've had really terrible, terrible days, but I, I don't, I don't, I can't recall, um, any, any time personally yet, thank goodness that I've considered, you know, I, I've been thankful to not have yet experienced the, the death of an immediate family member. Um, you know, things that would stick out very far in my mind there, they go back to more like periods of my life. My name is Sean and I am from Chicago. Oh man. Ah, so deep. These are so deep, Jason. Um, the worst moment in my life. I don't know. Um, I, you know what? I, I, I don't know if I can like properly answer that question. Like I would have to really like look back. Um, I've, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've had plenty of bad moments. I've lost a lot of people in my life. Um, but to be honest, like I don't really dwell. I'm not one to really dwell on situations and, um, you know, like think like heavily on like bad moments that happen because I just look at it like they are moments that happen and, and you get to choose if you want to carry them with you or move forward. And I usually just kind of choose to move forward. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, you know, right now, like, you know, I'm in a like financial, it's a little bit of a financial rut because, you know, my business is not able to produce like it should be during this time. Um, but again, it's like dwelling on the bad that's happening usually help prevents you from um, possibly focusing on the good. And I try to stay grateful as much as I can. Like I do a thing called uh, TYATs or That You Appreciate Thursdays. And so every single Thursday, I have a reminder to make a post and talk about something that I appreciate or something I'm grateful for, whether it's a human person or um, just something like like last week, I showed my appreciation for the internet, um, just to talk about my gratitude for that. Um, and I think that, you know, having an attitude of gratitude really creates the best attitude. So, um, I couldn't tell you what the worst moment of my life was, Jason, because it's just like, my mind doesn't allow me to like go there, I guess. My name is Mark Allen Fishman. I am from Homewood, Illinois. The worst moment of my life. I'm going to I'm going to veer away from the medical answer since I already gave that. I would say the worst moment of my life tangibly would have been at my college. Um, they had something called sophomore review. So in order to declare your major in our um in, in, in the school I went to, you couldn't do that freshman year. You basically, everyone had to take the same freshman classes. Everyone had to have the same foundation, regardless of your talent or your AP classes. They didn't care. 
they said, come in with um, everyone's going to take the same batch of classes. Then you kind of lean towards where you'd like to go first semester of sophomore year. And then at the break, you will present to a board what you want to do. You'll show them your portfolio and then they'll either pass you through or if they don't think that's right for you, then they'll kind of shuffle you where they think you need to go or make recommendations. Now, the problem is um, I went to a school where I felt like I was hot shit. I graduated 65th or 68th, sorry, 68th out of 350 some odd kids. And, um, you know, upper echelon of the class, uh, certainly amongst the honors kids and whatnot, thought I was going to get into really highfalutin schools. I got waitlisted. I was not going to wait. I was not going to do any type of local schooling. I just needed to get the hell out of Dodge. So I ended up choosing this school that um, on paper made a lot of sense for me because it was a private art education matched to a normal university's general ed, which to me is more powerful than going to just an art school where all of your math and science are flown in and basically, uh, you know, taught to you out of a book. And thank you very much for playing. So I, I liked the idea of this school. Anyway, I thought I was hot shit because uh, everyone else going to this school, like it was predominantly seen as a commuter school. It was not seen as a destination place, but uh, it didn't matter. The education was, was still there if you were looking for it. Needless to say, I went in front of that sophomore review board. I could have given two fucks about what I presented to them because I'm Mark fucking Fishman. And, you know, I know who I am and you know who I am. I'm helping all of you in the in the, the student center. My job was working in the tech center and I helped everybody. So why wouldn't I, you know, get to do exactly whatever I wanted to do? Well, um, I wanted to be a graphic designer and I presented my portfolio and they said no. They just looked at me and said, eh, too much personal style to be a graphic designer. Sorry. Uh, you'll have to, uh, well, th- what they told me is we'd like to see you do another round of classes and you should reapply next year. But I was an out of state student and I was paying, I don't know, five, six times what everyone else was paying to be there. And they're just financially, there was no way that was going to happen. So I told them where they could shove it. And I declared general fine arts. And I would say at that moment, um, basically, being told I couldn't have what I thought I deserved uh, at that very moment would be one of the worst of my life. All right. So how that changed me, um, it put me in a very dark mood uh, to be told no outright. And I uh, basically became a very moody, angsty bitch of a man. (laughs) All of my friends uh, got into the things that they declared and to see people that honestly prior I looked with just a little bit of a, yeah, that's good for you. I'm sure you'll do fine uh, feeling and to see all of them pass through all of a sudden it, it really put me in my place. And I essentially phoned in so much of what I was doing after that. Cause I was like, I'll just declare general fine ed. I'll work in the tech lab. I'll become a graphic designer on my own and go fuck off. This whole school can go to hell. And 
um, at that point, I, uh, I took classes to take classes and then I was like, oh, maybe I'll use this as my excuse to learn how to become a comic book artist because that's what I was really here for. Damn it. Except I knew full well that as much as I wanted to make comics there, you don't go to school and graduate with a degree in comic books. And then you get to go walk to Marvel and DC and say, ta-da, you know, you still have to make stuff. So. I uh, took a bunch of illustration classes where I uh, sat next to people who could draw me out of the water and made me feel bad. And uh, honest to God, really just um, hit bottom from an education standpoint, from a, a life, you know, the, the, the Dennis Leary, I thought I was going to be the center fielder for the Boston Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll shut the fuck up and put on a helmet. Life sucks. And I kind of reached the bottom of that arc when I took this class called monotype woodcut one which i literally took to fill the time and give me the three credit hours i needed to continue to get myself to graduate and this class was very much a survey class like a uh you know we're just gonna do one of everything we're gonna show you all the different ways you can do different cool printing techniques and you we're not even gonna pay attention to what you draw draw a smiley face, draw a flower, draw yourself, whatever. We don't care. We care more about you learning the technique. Fine. So I, I phoned in that whole class and we got to like the, the woodcut section of the class, which was like the last three, four weeks. So teacher gives us a wood block, shows us the process, you know, draw on the block, but you got to draw backwards because it's going to print forwards and, you know, we'll roll it up with ink. You throw a piece of paper on there, you roll the whole thing under a press and ta-da, you got to print and then do with it what you will. And I saw there was a lot of things you could do with that. But again, I could have given two fucks about him or the class or anybody. So I think I carved like five lines into the thing and, and whatever. Here you go. And then a critique, I, you know, bullshitted my way through it. Hey, this is my piece and it's inspired by Frank Miller and it's all comic booky and there's a lot of shadows to the, and the teacher who himself was a very Zen to the point of lazy kind of dude. He was clearly a gallery artist that was fulfilling his, you know, need to get a paycheck prophecy of teaching this class, but something about my attitude the work I presented, I don't know exactly what it was, but like this guy out of out of the fog he normally sat in, all of a sudden straightens up and looks out into the class, but is doing that thing where he's talking to the whole class, but looking directly at me through me. And he says, I want all of you to pay attention. You get out of this what you put in think about it and then called on the next student. And when he said that it was like a lightning bolt hit me right in the spine. And I was like, Holy fucking shit. What is my, what is my problem? Why am I, you know, bitching my, you know, why, why am I in this mood? Like he's absolutely right. I'm spending all this money and I don't give a shit anymore. That's stupid. So class ends. I go to his office. I apologize. And he looks at me like, huh? And I told him like, no, I totally understand what you said in there. And I want another chance. Please let me carve a new board. And he's like, what you did was fine. I'm like, it's not fine. Let me carve another board. He goes, okay, sure. Take another one. Go nuts. And I took that. And the only gouge I had, which is a one millimeter gouge, the smallest you can buy. And 
I carved that thing to ribbons, whatever it is I drew. I don't even remember, but I, I mean, literally just carved it. I think, I don't know if I slept. I just tried basically and came back the next day. I showed it to him. I rolled it up and did the prints and all that. And he looked at it and he goes, well, damn, uh, okay. And this is the end of junior year. He goes, what are you doing for senior year? And I said, well, I, you know, I'm a general fine arts major. I didn't get into the graphic design program. And he's like, yeah, they're a bunch of morons. You know, what are you going to do though? And I told him, I want to make comics. I want to do this. I want to do that. I don't really know what I want to do. He goes, well, tell you what, figure out what you want to do and do it with me. Come up with something that you want to challenge yourself to do for a year and I'll sign off on it. You can get six credit hours and be my, uh, you know, it's independent study and I'll sign off on it. And I said, oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'll do that. So I I went home and I I wrote up this prospectus to do uh, the largest piece I could possibly conceive doing over the course of an entire school year. And he accepted it. And my senior year of college, I carved an eight foot by 10 foot wood carving uh, that was for 16 blocks that measured out to eight feet by 10 feet when you put them all together. And I carved them all with a one millimeter gouge. And if he had not, if I had not failed sophomore year uh, to get where I wanted to be, and had I not been stared at through the soul <laughs> to be questioned about what am I willing to give to get what I want in life, I uh, I would have never had that change. And it was the combination of those two things that that narrative, which has um, prefaced everything I've done in my life ever since anything that I have set my my eyes towards has never felt like it's impossible because I've already done things that people thought were impossible and they weren't. It was just, you know, sit down and do the damn work. And I think, you know, it's one of those bits of advice that I wish I could give myself all the time. I don't have any tattoos because, well, I. I hate needles. So I, 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 that's one of those things I should probably get a carving and put it somewhere everywhere I'm looking because Lord knows I, I probably need to be reminded of it uh, about 20 times a day. Maybe that should have been my mantra. Oh, well, you can edit that. My name is M. I am from Chicago, Illinois. Um, I would say the most negatively defining moment of my life was, um, getting raped when I was a young teen, um, by friends, uh, who I had been friends with for a year. And so my friend and I didn't see it coming. Um, although now when I look at it, I go, oh, hello, they were grooming us. Like, I mean, there were so many things, but, but I had already been victimized in many different ways. So to me that I couldn't, I couldn't protect myself or see that coming. Um, I would say that that has, that has negatively um, affected most aspects of my life since then. And and like we have to carry that and my husband has to carry that and that sucks and i hope that that it was worth it to them how do you carry this in your 
in your life? Uh, trust, trusting others, uh, especially when it was that long. Like if I hadn't known them or I had just met them that weekend, you know, but these were people that I hung out with for a year. So trust is hard. Trust is hard. Uh, and things like, uh, uh, physical, uh, t- like, um, if somebody, um, hugs me a certain way, I'll be like, I'm suffocating. I'm suffocating. You know, like there's trauma based around my, um, physical person, you know, so things that shouldn't, uh, that wouldn't affect the, uh, someone who hadn't gone through that, you know, that, that affects me. So is there any wisdom or notes of advice you would give to someone in this situation? Uh, get help early and tell who gives a shit what anybody thinks tell scream it from the freaking rooftop. I don't, you know, and I think that with this me too movement that we have people now who are going, I don't care. I'm going to be maligned in the press. I'm going to have people say that it wasn't real. I'm going to have the, the, perpetrator um is going to be believed or get a slap on the wrist or not even a slap on the wrist um and i know someone with a drug uh possession of marijuana is going to get a stricter sentence than someone who who raped a woman so or a or a pedophile you know who abused a, a child um there are you know tell anyway don't let them hide because it, yeah, we got to shine a light. It's never going to change until you shine a light on it. Thank you for being so vulnerable. I, I appreciate your honesty. No, my, actually, I can't say my pleasure, necessarily, <laughs> but I am happy always to talk about the things that are difficult. If it's going to get one person to go, Oh, someone understands and someone, you know, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to get lots of therapy, a lot of therapy and early. I waited and I waited tw- a long time before the, for the first time. And then I didn't get therapy. For, then I, w- I waited a really long time. And now I'm finally working on, on the trauma aspects of my life. And I'm 51. So that's not ideal. <laughs> Don't wait that long. <laughs> Stories make us all feel a little more connected to the world. Like, no matter what's happening to you, know that you're not alone. Because maybe someone else out there has had the same experience or something similar. Through stories, we can connect. We can vibe. We can solidify our existence in this world, in this big story called life. And we're doing it together. And I think we need that now more than ever. Do you have a story about the worst moment of your life? Send us an email at behindeverystory at gmail.com. We'd love to hear it or play it on an episode. Thank you so much for joining us here on Behind Every Story. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast streaming app or sharing our podcast with your friends, family, or just random people. 
Be sure to like us and follow us on Facebook at Behind Every Story Podcast to stay up to date on all our new episodes. And you can always follow us on BehindEveryStory.com. Great storytellers make the world a smaller and more intimate place. Thank you to all the storytellers out there, big and small. And thank you to our guests this episode, Al, Brett, Bob, Brandon, Chris, Chris, Daniel, John, Lauren, and Ryan, M, Mark, Marie, Michael, Potato, Johnson, Rob, Sarah, Stella, Sean, and Zach. I've been your storyteller, Jason Osterkamp, and it's been a pleasure sitting around the campfire with you. Join us again next time when we get to ask everyone, what is the weirdest thing that has ever happened to you? I'll see you next time on Behind Every Story. This week's musical guest is a local and one of my more favorite live bands that I've ever seen. Uh, They're super fun. Here is Egon's Unicat with The Passion of the Cat. Thanks, man.